Someone said that the word atonement, if you break that word down, it, it, it sort of means to be at one with God. If you think about how will this take place, how will we, how will the world, well, of course, that process for us of being at one with God has, has begun for us, but how will the world ultimately be at one with God? You know, we celebrated the, the Feast of Trumpets, but now, after the Feast of Trumpets, the greatest obstacle to world peace must be removed, and I'm referring to Satan the devil. Before you can have peace, before you can have, you know, a blessed life uh, without war, without crime, without evil, this being that we know of as Satan the devil must be removed. And, you know, sometimes people will say, well, how come you don't talk more about, you know, the atoning work of Jesus Christ? Well, that is covered. It's covered very well in the uh, first holy day, well, not the first holy day, but the begin what introduces the holy day, and that is the Passover, the grace of Jesus Christ. That is covered, and atonement is about the atoning work of Christ, His uh, sacrifice for us. But in the uh, typology of the holy days, for, to, for me, the holy days wouldn't make a lot of sense if this being that we know as Satan the devil, if, it was not, if he was not mentioned, if there was not a word about him in the holy days. It's sort of like you'd be leaving something out if there is this, this being that you see from Genesis to Revelation, right at the very beginning, you know, has God said. So for the holy days to, to leave that out, to overlook that, would be a great, you know, that, that wouldn't make a lot of sense to me as far as the pictures of the holy days. But truth of the matter is, this being is mentioned with the description, I believe, of the, of the two goats, the one for the Lord, that tells you plainly what that goat represents, the Lord's goat. The other, the Azazel, or the scapegoat, which means goat of departure. In other words, this being that we know as Satan has a departure date. And that's, that's good news. Now, I was thinking about what this day means for God. You know, when it's finally completed, when it's finally fulfilled when this being is finally, Satan is finally dealt with. What, what, what does that mean? What would, what would that mean for God? Because God, you know, has an enemy. God has a thorn in the flesh. He has an enemy that takes everything. I mean, think about this. Suppose you had an enemy that everything you have done, this enemy has perverted it. Everything that is beautiful, love, marriage, respect, commitment. You know, everything you come up with, all of God's original design, His creation, He created them male and female, everything, this being, your enemy, perverts it and twists it, twists, twists the whole concept. I mean, imagine what that's like to endure that for 6,000 years. Everything that you say, He twists it. You know, the Word of God. He, he, you could look at examples of certain type of preaching, how that that's been, the Word of God has been twisted. So you have this enemy, everything you say, the enemy twists it. Everything that you have built, the enemy just wants to destroy it. You know, in kindergarten, I used to have a, a little boy, his name was Fergie, and everything that I built, yeah, that was a Fergie, what a strange name, but it, the name was fitting, by the way. But everything, everything that I built, my little toys, he would come along and go, just, I mean, he did it, did it to everybody. 
Everybody hated Fergie and because that's what he did. He went around destroying stuff. It was just his nature. I know he's, no telling what he's doing today. Uh, <laughs> everything that you have created, this enemy wants to, wants to bring it to ruin, complete ruin. So I want you to think about what this day will mean for God. Now, it is true, God has allowed this being to exist. And you know why? Because you can't build character without resistance. Just like you can't build muscles without resistance. You can't build godly character without this, this, this enemy, this resistance to this enemy. Think about it this way. God's sacrifice for you in order for you to build godly character, because character would not exist without this kind of resistance, God's sacrifice for you is that He has exposed Himself to this enemy. This enemy that everything that God says, the enemy twists, everything that God has built, the enemy that wants to destroy, everything that God has created, this enemy brings to ruin or tries to bring to ruin. In a way, God has allowed temporary, temporarily for 6,000 years his reputation to be ruined by this enemy for a greater purpose, the purpose of building godly character. Because character could not be built without this resisting, without resisting the enemy. Now, when I say, in a way, God has allowed his reputation to be ruined by this enemy, well, just look at how people view God today. Just look at it. Just, just think about that. How people, in general, view God. But we know what, why he's, uh, he has allowed this enemy. It's for a specific purpose. That resistance is needed in the, in the development of godly character. You know, Jesus, when he was on this earth, his earthly ministry, he had an enemy, Judas. Think about that. You know, we talk about, okay, God has an enemy, Satan, Judas, you know, Jesus, while he was on this earth, he had this constant thorn in the flesh, this, this, this enemy named Judas. So I want you to think about what this day will mean for God, the departure date, what it will mean for God. Now, one of my favorite verses for uh, co connecting up the meaning of this day is 1 John 3 and verse 8. 1 John 3 and verse 8. I want to take a look at that verse. 1 John 3 and verse 8 says, He that commits sin is of the devil. Now that in itself is a powerful statement. He that commits sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, notice this, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The ultimate outcome, the ultimate goal, the ultimate thing that we're after here is to destroy the works of the devil. One, in your personal life, the power that he has over us, the struggle with temptation to destroy the work of the devil, but ultimately to destroy the works of the devil. Now, what are the works of the devil in our life, in our lives? I want to go through three points here about the works of this being in our personal life. And I want to nail this down so that we can be aware of what actually is going on in our lives, the things that we struggle with. First of all, you know the story, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but the devil, you know, 
think about this. When Christ began his ministry, Satan comes to Jesus. And he says, If you be the Son of God, command that these stones be turned into bread. I mean, the gall of this being to go to Christ, the Son of God. He is the tempter. And this is exactly what he was doing here, tempting Christ. If you be the Son of God, you know, uh, he takes him up on a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this power I will give you and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. You know, the temptation of Christ, what we get from this is that Satan is a great tempter. Satan is the initiator of temptation. You know, you think, okay, where do, this, where do temptations come from? Well, the, the key point to remember here is he is the initiator of temptation. He gets the ball rolling. And from there, often we take over and do a very good job at submitting to, to, to sin. But he's the initiator of it. Uh, now, I think about with Jesus, it was a little bit different because Jesus didn't have a weakness. In other words, as he tempted Christ, he had to use just common sense knowledge. In other words, he knew Jesus got hungry. And so he said, commanded these stones be made bread. Uh, he looked at Jesus, and I don't, I don't think Jesus had an ego, but he did want to be to qualify for king of king and to rule this nation with a rod of iron. And so, so he says, well, look, if you'll do it my way, I'll give you all of these kingdoms right now. So, but he, it was just a basic common sense thing as he looked at Christ, because Christ didn't really have a weakness that, that Satan could hone in on. Now, for us, it's different, is it not? Because, in other words, he knows what, you, what your weakness is. And so the temptation, whatever that is, that's the area he's going to hone in on. Your weakness. That's where he's going to be tempting you at. I mentioned, uh, I think last week, have you ever started your day off very good and you're thinking, I feel good. I feel close to God. I've prayed to God. I've studied his word, I'm, I'm listening to a, a CD as I'm driving down the road, a sermon or something. I feel good about God. And out of nowhere, maybe at the end of the day, something hits you like a ton of bricks, a temptation out of left field, and you think, why, why did this even occur? Nothing before that point should have led me to this point. And chances are there is no connection there. The point is, Satan is a great tempter. He initiates the temptation. That's the point, I'm, one of the points I'm trying to get across. In James 1 and verse 13, now, now let's, let's take a look at what we do once the temptation has been initiated. James 1 and verse 13, this is sort of where we go with it a lot of times, and there's a warning here. James 1 and verse 13, James 1 and verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. 
Now again, what you do with the temptation at the point of the initiation is critical here. One, it says, don't blame God for it. That, that's one point. Don't, don't blame God for this, this thing that has come your way. Once that thing has been initiated, there is a tendency to be drawn away of your own lust, to feed into it, to give into it. But I think we need to know where it's coming from. One of the things that's helped me in dealing with temptation is the word, two words, no compromise. No compromise. I mean, think about it. If Christ, if, if the Father didn't compromise with his Son when he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If there was no compromise there, in other words, no, I, I can't work it out any other way. I want you to go through this. If there was no compromise there, then the least we can do is say, Lord, you know, dealing with our temptations that Satan initiates to say, look, no compromise. No compromise. So, I, I'm, I want us to understand he is the great tempter. You know, that is the first thing you see about Satan, you know, is that he's a great tempter. Has God said you shouldn't eat of that? I mean, right off the get-go, this is how he's identified, as a tempter. And I, I, for me, often I have thought, well, the temptation must be coming from within. And, yeah, I mean, but, but, but the, the point is, the question is, who initiates that temptation? We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that being who does just that because he's referred to as a great tempter. That's the first characteristic that we see. So identify those areas in your life. Who just initiated that? Once you identify that, you, you'll have a, a, an upper hand in dealing with not going to that second stage where you're, you're carried away with the lust of the flesh. We don't want to do that. Okay, the second works of the devil is that he is a deceiver. Revelation 12 and verse 9. Revelation 12 and verse 9. A, a deceiver. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That great dragon was cast out, the serpent called the devil, which deceives the whole world. You know, I used to, well, I still have that printer. It's an expensive printer, and one time I was fooling around a copier printer, and I stuck a $100 bill in it. <laughs> and I pressed print, you know. <laughs> Man, that thing looked real, I'm telling you. It was, a, you know, it was a counterfeit, of course. But it really did a great, and I, I wrinkled, I cut it out and wrinkled it up so it looked more real, you know. <laughs> and uh, just playing around, but, you know, one of the things that this deception is that he's good at counterfeiting things. And just like that $100 bill, you, you I could have probably passed it off. You'd have never known the difference. I mean, not that I would have done that, but I'm just saying it looked that real. So he's a counterfeit. He's a deceiver. Whether we're talking about our educational system, the colleges, uh, public school, a deceiver, religion, church, government, entertainment, music, he's a deceiver. I mean, and it's, it's hard to see through 
that deception, I think, just like the counterfeit that I talked about. Now, I think the greatest deception we have to be aware of is the influence or the impression of the godless, godless people. In our, you know, the impression they can make, the influence they can make upon us in our daily lives. That's a great area of deception that we need to be aware of, of how we can be influenced in that area. And today, the lines are blurred. You know, it used to be able, you'd be able to say, well, that, that, that person is godless. And you knew it, and, and it, was evil, it was easy to identify. Today, the lines have all become blurred because you have godless people claiming to be Christian, you see. Just like I saw something that says, I'm a Christian, and I support gay marriage. Well, does their God support gay marriage? No. You're dealing with a person who is totally ignorant of what the Word of God teaches on the subject. And after all, what is a Christian today? I'm a Christian, and I believe in gay marriage. Well, a Christian is... Let me give you the world's definition of Christian. I raised my hand and invited Jesus in my life. That's as far as it goes. No, I'm not saying with all people. I'm just saying that's it. There is no study of the Word. There is no obedience. There is no uh, Holy Spirit. There is no surrender. It's just, yeah, I'm a Christian because I say so. Often, you know, I'm a very, people can come across, I'm a very spiritual person. You hear that sometimes. I'm a very spiritual person. I'm, you know, I'm spiritual. And they don't necessarily mean close to God, by the way. I'm just spiritual, you know. The spirit they may be close to is something else, another spirit. It's not the spirit of God. But, uh, you know, and, 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 and so you, you got to come to a point where you can realize that's godless. That's godless. Um, places. Uh, I think every place has a spirit. Cities have a spirit about them. I, I think most, I can't talk. I think most cities are liberal, okay? I think they all have that in common. They're, they're liberal. Most cities are liberal. They, there's a difference between, you know, a city and a farmer out in the Midwest on a thousand acres of land, you know. If you were a farmer, you had a thousand, and you lived off the land, and your connection to the world was AM radio. No internet, no TV, and you worked hard all day long, and you helped, you had a thousand, thousand head of ca uh, cattle, and you, you helped the little, you helped the cows birth the, the, the calves, and, and it's hands-on experience, and you worked hard all day. You're close to creation. You're close to nature. You know, you work hard all day, you come home, you eat, you go to sleep and you get, it up, get, it, get up and do it all over again the next day. Now, th this, this farmer on his thousand acres of land would never wake up one day and say, you know, look across the landscape and say, you know, I think those two bulls got something going on. I think they would make a really great couple. It would never occur in a million years. It just, it, that thought would never enter his mind. Why? Because he's close to creation. <laughs> He would never look out and say, you know, I think that bull would look really good dressed up like a cow. Thought would never cross his mind. Not in a million years. Now, you take some of these same concepts to the city, and that, yeah, that's, that's a good thing. That's, I'm all for that stuff. 
You know, it's how one person influences another. Another person influence, uh, one life touches another. One influence, one impression, it's repeated, it's handed down, this person, that person, that person, and before you know it, you have got a society that has so, in their opinions, have so drifted away from the original concept of a relationship with God that they don't know whether they're, they're going or coming. Um, <clears throat> it, your environment, this is something that I've been seeing recently. Your, the heart of man could be changed. You could change the heart of man just by changing his environment. Just put him out in the country, turn him into a farmer, and his convictions will change. The way he views things, the way he views life, the way as he, as he helps you know, the, 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 the cows give birth and all that stuff. You know, it, it would change his life the way he views things. Change your environment, change the heart of man. And you know, really, that's sort of what the kingdom is about. It's changing your environment. It's going to be different, quite different. I, um, so I, I sort of, in, in, you know, with people, I sort of put people in a box very quickly. Godly, godless. You know, you people, well, you're judging. Well, I'm good at judging. Uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I'm good at it. <laughs> but I do. I mean, I mean, when people say things, when people, behaviors, I will say, okay, godless, godly. And, and I don't have a lot of in-between areas, gray areas myself. That's just me. When, one time we were out at visiting Rebecca in Charleston, and there was this clothing store, that, a, woman's, a women's clothing store that we went into. And I'm sort of, I'm not into women's clothes, by the way, but I was sort of sitting on the outside looking in. At, and I'm not talking about Walmart. I'm talking about a rather expensive clothing store. And there's these huge racks of clothes. And beneath them, there was this mound of clothes just circled the racks. It was the most chaotic environment I've ever seen where women, you know, they, they tried it on and just do it now, try it on, try it on, just mounds of clothes. And, and I thought, you know, that, that reveals something about a spirit of a place. One, it's ungrateful. It's consumer mentality. Just let me consume, consume, consume. And it's slothful. You know, now, I'm not picking on women, but I'm just saying I have never been in a man's clothing store where I tried on stuff and just threw it on the floor and said, let someone else take care of it. Never. In fact, I've never seen a man's clothing store in that same, with that same picture that I just saw at that store. I'm not picking on you women, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just relating differences here, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, was, it was a messy looking place. Um, so the greatest deception we have to be aware of is the influence, the impression of the godless that they have upon our lives. Why is this important? Hebrews 12 and verse 14 tells us why this is, this is important. To identify godless, godly people, impressions that they have upon us. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Without holiness, you're not going to see God. So th this is important for us to identify the influence that you allow in your life. The third work of the devil is 
adversary. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 says, Be sober. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. I know I go through this quick, but it's 1 it's Peter 5 and verse 8. I don't give you the time to turn to the scripture. 1 <laughs> Peter 5 and verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. You know, the word adversary means opponent. You have an opponent. Do we think about it that way? Now, here's, I'll share something with you about myself that is not the best characteristics, I guess, but I never liked sports in school. Just never did. It, to me, it, never, it didn't matter to me if, someone, if I came in second. <laughs> I didn't have to win. Um, when a fight broke out in school, I always knew it because everybody just ran to that. I would go the opposite direction. I didn't want to see it. Uh, so I'm, maybe I'm passive, rather passive by nature. But I look at this verse and it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your opponent, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he, whom he may devour. Okay, so, so if I'm passive, I don't like a fight, you know, don't mind coming in second, not, you know, not, not that big a deal on winning. You know, I need to, we need to understand that you have an opponent that you're up against. It's sort of like that Star Wars game at, at the feast one, years, uh, one year. I put two quarters in, and, it, and Darth Vader said, if you will not fight, you will meet your destiny. You know, you got, you, with an opponent, you've got to be willing to fight. So just keep that in mind. The Bible says, lest Satan should get advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And, and so we're not ignorant of the way he works. He is described as an opponent. We must fight. Deception. The greatest deception we have to be aware of is the influence and the impression of the godless around us and the impact that they make on our lives. We're not ignorant of that. And he's a great tempter. Satan initiates the temptation. Always keep that in your mind. Don't just think, okay, that's just coming from me. He's the initiator of it. Now, where you go with that is up to you. Now, in, in closing, what will happen to this evil spirit being known as Satan? And I might also add spirit beings, uh, demons. What will happen to them? You know, because a third of them rebelled against God. What happens to these beings? Let's take a look at it. It's a verse that I didn't know. Uh, it was said something new to me here. Isaiah 26 and verse 19. Isaiah 26 and verse 19. Some of the symbolism and language of Isaiah as he speaks can be a little bit difficult to understand. But it's, it's, it's not too hard to understand what he's implying here. Isaiah 26 and verse 19. He's talking about events that I think will occur at the end time. Isaiah 26 and verse 19. It says, The dead man shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. What is it when the earth cast out the dead? Well, it's, it's a resurrection. It's a resurrection. 
Next verse. Come, my people, enter into thy chambers and shut the door about thee. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Now here, it almost is a reference to, and these things don't have to be in order necessarily, but and, and a reference to the tribulation. You know, it says hide yourself until this indignation has passed. Almost a reference to the end time tribulation. Next verse. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall, also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. So what do we have here? We have what looks like the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. It says the Lord comes out of his place to, in, to punish the inhabitants of the earth. But now notice the next chapter, Isaiah 27 and verse 1. It's sort of, the theme sort of continues on. It says, In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan and pierce, pierce the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. You know, I just think that's interesting how those things sort of come to fit together, almost a reference to one of the meanings of this day that Leviathan, I mean, I mean, that crooked serpent, a day that this being will be dealt with. I just thought that was interesting how those four verses sort of fit together as an end time scenario of uh, tribulation, uh, resurrection, Christ returning, and then this being being dealt with. A couple more verses, Mark 1 and verse 23, Mark 1 and verse 23. We're asking the question, what will happen to these spirit beings at the end Mark 1 and verse 23 Mark 1 and verse 23 little story here of, of an encounter Jesus had with evil spirits and there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying notice what he says let us alone what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Are you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I just think that's interesting that the question is asked, have you come to destroy us? Now, it wasn't at that time, but they seem to know something that, uh, about their destiny. Last verse, Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, speaking of Christ, likewise took part of the same. And through death, that through death, excuse me, he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil, to destroy. So I think it's okay to say that every sin that we have ever committed, we had a partner. We had a partner in sin. We understand that. And we are grateful for the atonement of Jesus Christ, that we can be forgiveness, forgiven of our sin. But we've all, every time we commit a sin, there is a partner that we have. But the day is coming when we will be born into the family of God. And we will all have a sinless nature at that point. And that partner in sin will be destroyed.
If you would like more information or if you have any questions, write to Is That Really in the Bible? 27 Brookledge Lane, Rocky Mount, Virginia 24151. Or visit us on the web at Is That Really in the Bible? dot net.